The 2-1 home to Sierra. Line drive into left field. That's going to drop for a base hit. Nick Dunn rounds third. He's going to come in to score. Nick Sierra joined the RBI party. 8-0 Maryland. Swung on and cracked to deep right field. Chasing it back is Taylor at the wall. It's out of here. Madison Nickens with the third home run of the inning for the Terps. Ingle kicks and deals and Dunn lines a base hit down the left field line. Nickens comes around third. He will score. Dunn into second with an RBI double and we're tied at three. 3-1. Swung on and cracked to deep center field. Going back is Powell. He's at the wall. Leaping is out of here. A grand slam for Nick Sieri and the Terps take an 8-7 lead. Bonine kicks and delivers. That one's hit to deep left field. Going back is Vargas. It's a no-doubter. Over the scoreboard and out of here. Marty Costas goes yard. His second home run of the game. And the Terps lead it 7-2. First pitch to Tyler and he swings away and hits it to right field straight away. Nickens is there. He makes the catch. Tagging is Dogan. He's going to try to score the throw to the plate. The tag. And he is out at the plate. Madison Nickens guns him down. And the Terps get out of the inning. Good evening and welcome to the 14th episode of the Maryland Baseball Podcast. We're halfway through the season now, 28 games in. The Terps have split them right down the middle, 14-14 and 14 on the year, coming off the series loss to High Point this past weekend. Jake Eisenberg and Matt present here, and we'll be joined by a couple midweek starters, Taylor Stiles and Hunter Parsons later. But before we get to that, we'll take a look at the weekend that was, and we'll examine some other players on this Terps roster. Marty Costas named Big Ten Freshman of the Week after his monster five-game stretch. And I, I guess that's a that's as good a place to start as any, Matt. Yeah, and I mean, we said it on the broadcast, but we'll repeat it right now. And that's just how far Marty Costas has come as a hitter. He's no longer just a guy who's going to get your fastball right down the middle and do some damage with it, but he's going to work the count. He's going to see some pitches. And as Coach Chef said, among the freshmen on this team, the best plate discipline on the team. And I think that's what's landing him those mistake pitches, and he's certainly capitalizing. Oh, you're, you're right. We mention it all the time. If you give him a pitch to hit, he's going to make you pay for it. And he's really been the biggest surprise for this Terps team. Nobody really saw him starting, much less contributing the way that he has at the onset of the season. We kind of all expected Jamal Wade to kind of take that role as, you know, the big power bat playing left field. But it's really been Marty Costas who's taken over and played his way into the lineup now every day. And the numbers for Costas over the past five days, Matt, are absolutely staggering like there, there's a big reason why he's the big 10 freshman of the week certainly deserving slashed 389 with a 500 on base percentage and get this a slugging percentage of an even 1000 well that that baseball's just got to look enormous to marty costas these days but you know i really think it comes back to all the hard work he puts in and everyone on this team works hard there's no doubt about it but you see marty every single day before the game after batting practice, everyone's going back to the shell. He's sitting there. He's doing T-work just by himself, working, working, working. It's all the little things. And two of his home runs this weekend, Jake, to right center field. He's hitting to all parts of the ballpark, and then he comes around on Sunday and ropes a fastball down the left field line for a double. I mean, he's hitting to all parts. He's working the count. He's doing the little things. And he's now a stable in the lineup and playing left field well as well. At the beginning of this season, he was swinging a little bit more freely, but still making contact, so both the walk and strikeout numbers were both low. Now he has 11 walks on the season, which is just 15 strikeouts. That's pretty solid 
for a freshman. And just to you know go through the rest of the numbers from this five-game stretch, three home runs, as you mentioned, Matt, two doubles, seven RBIs. He's leading all Big Ten freshmen in the conference with those six home runs and now 23 RBIs and those both figures that now lead the team. So really the powerhouse that nobody expected coming out of nowhere. Yeah, and I think if you look at his swing, it's not a prototypical power swing. He's very short to the baseball. He's just so strong. And as much as Coach Sheff will allude to the fact that he played three sports in high school is perhaps a, a detriment to his development as a baseball player and how he's he's still young, he's not yet polished, and you know he has such a high ceiling. I think being a three-sport athlete has allowed him you know, to manage his time well to do the little things and provide him that strength that with that short and compact swing takes the ball over the fence. I mean, it's not just the power either. He's hitting up around 300 as well. And we've talked about it a lot on the offensive side of the ball, but on defense where, you know, you might assume he's a liability in left field, he's really not. He's really been an above-average defender for this Terps team. He's the lone starting member of the, member of the starting nine in the field that has yet to commit an error this season. We saw him almost make a diving grab this weekend just off the heel of his glove, but... He's got a strong arm out there in left field. He showcased that this weekend as well. So really all around, Marty Casas has been a revelation for this Terps team. Yeah, and he's not a natural outfielder. He played shortstop in high school. I think he played mostly third base this summer in the Cal Ripken League uh, for the Baltimore Redbirds. So he's making that transition, and so far so good. I mean, he, he looks very comfortable out there in left. So Marty Casas, a strong weekend. He'll look to continue it in this second straight week of five games for the Terps, but now we'll turn our attention to more of an overall view of this past week, and we'll start with Friday and Mike Schwarn. I think the conversation needs to be had about what is wrong with Mike Schwarn. Well, there's been a lot of speculation, Jake, about his arm slot. Uh, different people have brought it up, including some coaches out in California, but uh, we talked to Coach Vaughn, and he said that the coaching staff has looked at images and videos, and his arm slot is in the same spot as it was a year ago. And so he's he's made some mistake pitches. He's, you know, not gone as deep in ball games. The strikeout number is still pretty much there. He's just giving up hits uh, and giving up runs at a higher clip than last year. And at times, Coach Chef says, has just lost the strike zone. And, and it's such a mystery why a guy who's been so dominant would all of a sudden run into trouble when his mechanics seem the same. But I think, and, and you'll, of course, you know, follow up on this, it's just the fact that he obviously dominated high school. He's obviously dominated, you know, college ball up until this point. This is really probably the first time in his life, save for, you know, some extent with Team USA last summer, that he's really encountered adversity or that he's really run into not just a game but a stretch of games where he hasn't pitched his best. Well, his past start against High Point was the shortest of his career, lasted less than four innings. The previous shortest was last year against UNC Wilmington. But the thing that's interesting for me about watching Schwarn is, as you mentioned, arm slot's still there and the mechanics all there. One thing that you know you might notice is the slider hasn't been finding the zone as much, which you mentioned, and hasn't been biting as much. And that kind of is go-to strikeout pitch, but the strikeout number's still there. And furthermore, what's even more interesting is that his opponent's batting average is still is still 209, and that's among the best on the team. You know, second only to Brian Shaver, who's at 207. So he's not giving up too many hits. They're just coming with runners on base, and he's getting behind against some hitters where he shouldn't be. And it's just, you know, in certain situations, we're seeing things seem to fall apart a little bit for a guy where you wouldn't expect them to. 
Yeah, and you know, even his walk numbers, you know, fifteen walks and seven starts, that's you can certainly live with that. There's nothing wrong with that. Of course, if you look above him and see Brian Schaefer with five over seven starts and Taylor Bloom with four over seven starts, it might not look as good. But those are just fantastic numbers. You can't even expect someone to be to be close to that. I mean, it's just what pleasant surprises they have been uh, in that regard, both sporting sub-three ERAs. But, again, you look at Shorn's numbers. They're not Mike Shorn numbers, but if your third starter in the weekend has a 4.15 ERA and a 2.09 opposing batting average, you know, you don't think that's bad. Well, but it's your Friday guy who right. had such lofty expectations and now everyone's asking the questions. Well, you you wonder, you have to wonder if the expectations and you know some of the pressures of having all these scouts at games and the prospects of being drafted at the end of the season. You know, obviously they weigh on you. The question is how much. But this is not a new phenomenon for him. He's had scouts at his games and the prospects of being drafted. You know, since he came to Maryland, I think you know just this season, it's the fact that it's more of a reality maybe. But the fact of the matter is that you know I don't think his struggles would be nearly as prominent if. Taylor Bloom and Brian Schaefer weren't pitching as well as they are. I'm going to disagree with you. I think they'd be more prominent because I think this team would be in a lot more trouble. I mean, right now they're 14 and 14. They're not where they want to be. But if you don't have a Saturday and a Sunday guy pitching as well as Bloom and Schaefer are pitching, Mike Schwarren's struggles look that much worse because he's supposed to be the guy that is relied upon. Well, on the other side of that, you could also make the argument that if Bloom and Schaefer were pitching you know, well below the levels they're pitching now, things would be a little bit more consistent overall, and you'd be able to say, okay, you know, the pitching staff is struggling. We're surprised Mike is too, but it's, you know, it's still affecting everybody. I think in this case, at least from my perspective, his struggles are more prominent, A, because, you know, our expectations of him are so high every time he takes the mound, and B, because the two guys pitching in the weekend behind him are pitching like Friday night guys around the rest of the country. There's there's certainly... Something to that. And we I can think, agree to, we can agree to disagree. Um, but I think to use something Coach Vaughn said, Mike Shawarn is too hard a worker and has too good stuff to keep struggling for a prolonged amount of time. And it's just about when is he going to get over whatever hurdle it is in his head or mechanically. I mean, we, th- we think from, from everything we've gathered, it's just a mental block. And when is he going to get over that? And hopefully for the Terps, it's sooner rather than later. Well, he'll make his next start this coming Friday against Ohio State, and that's the first ever unicorn night. There'll be a giveaway at Shipley Field of unicorn horns to you know the first you know hundred or so students that come out to the game. That's a 5:30 start, and you know maybe we'll see Shawarn turn it around against the home crowd. And I think with Big Ten conference play, he'll start to get things going. He led the conference in strikeouts last year, and of course you know broke the program record for wins in a season and so many other records last year. He won't re-up those records this year. But I think conference play is is a good kind of turning point for him. Well, it's his night. It's time to rise to the occasion, I guess. Um, but as we kind of work through the rest of the weekend, Maryland dropping two of three to High Point, and High Point, you know, not a bad team, but certainly you want to be winning these non-conference series. You want to be winning any series, to be honest. You don't want to be at 500 at this junction in the season. Obviously, there's a lot of games to be played. We're halfway home, and there's a lot of conference games, which will mean a lot. But right now, I think the Terps are on the outside looking in. And, you know, to start at home against Ohio State this weekend in their first Big Ten home series, it's really going to be critical to start winning these series. And the Terps, I was talking to Taylor Smythe about this, uh, the media relations guy for Maryland baseball. 
the Terps have a lot of easier, if I can say that, I mean, no series is easy, but easier series at home and tougher conference series on the road. And I, th I think that works a little bit to their disadvantage, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what your schedule looks like. It doesn't matter that you started in Alabama and then had to go to California and then come back and play midweek games. You got to just start winning. Well, the series down in Alabama was one that, you know, everyone was confident and high on the Terps. They were coming, kind of come away with the series win, and it was a it was a close game on Sunday. And Alabama's been a team that has been, you know, really good this season. And you know, give the Terps credit going out to California and having you know the strong week out there that they did, taking two out of three from Cal State Fullerton because that's a marquee series win right there. But I think you're right. At this point, the Terps are on the outside looking in to the NCAA, you know, postseason picture. I think right now. You're looking at a team that would need to win the Big Ten tournament to earn that automatic berth. They made it to the finals in their first year of the league <laughs> last year. But, you mean, you know, baseball is a game where you never really know what's going to happen. And, you know, last year there was an Illinois team that was underwhelming to start the season. And they, you know, enter Big Ten conference play, reel off 27 straight wins before, you know, ending the Terps ended that in the Big Ten tournament. So, you know, perhaps the Terps can reel off some sort of, you know, magical streak like that. And, That'll propel them into the NCAA tournament picture, you know, faster than anybody. And to go back to this weekend a little bit, we talked about the pitching. Friday wasn't Mike Schwarm's best. He'll be the first to admit that. Saturday, Taylor Bloom was decent. It wasn't his best stuff. Um, he started off the game really well and then gave up a, a bunch of hits in the fifth and sixth before he ultimately exited. But I think in his defense, there were a lot of, a lot of innings where he sat a lot. And the game was not one that moves smoothly, I guess. We walked 11 times. I mean, it it was a weird game. It was certainly a weird game and a tale of two games, as we were saying yeah. during the broadcast, when you walk, you know, eight times in the first two innings and put up, you know, a 10 nothing lead going into the middle three. And then, you know, you kind of turn around and put up a three spot in the fifth inning and the bats come alive and you end up, you know, scoring 13 runs on 11 hits. And I think you're right. There is some rust that occurs, you know, in those between those innings when, you know, the Maryland, you know, team is batting around and, you know, getting all these rallies going. I mean, the the, the concern for Bloom has always been the amount of hits that he gives up. You know, he... And he faced a team that hits the ball a lot. Right. They're there an average It was team. a team that, that was hitting for an average right around 300. You know, Bloom's opposing batting average at 277, which is a little bit higher than you'd want to see, but he makes up for that with that really strong strikeout-to-walk ratio. 34 strikeouts to just four walks on the season for him. And, you know, in this game, didn't, didn't walk a batter again, so his streak of, you know, walkless innings continues. And I think for him, you know, with that, you know, huge cushion in front of him that – you know, it, it was okay. You know, if he wanted, if he's going to give up four runs in five and two-thirds, this was certainly the start to do it in. And then no walks again on Sunday. And Brian Schaefer is just pitching so well lately. He gets the loss on Sunday, eight and a third, four runs on six hits, three strikeouts, no walks. And he just made two mistake pitches, one for a two-run home run and one for a, a two-run double. And, you know, that's that's what he said as well in the post game. But overall, his pitching is just so strong right now. Um, so I think Maryland has a lot to be happy for in that regard. Now the bats. On Saturday, you, you walk 11 times. You know, John John Chef says postgame, you, you know, you're a really bad team if you can't win a game where you walk 11 times. So let's kind of take Saturday out of the equation. Even though we won, I don't mean to belittle that. But I think what we've seen on Friday, Sunday, and perhaps more over throughout the season, is there, is there time for Maryland to string sets together? And they have the beginning. And the 
time and time really struggle to cash in. Cash in. Anthony, how happy with the base lines and lines right back to the pitch? Well, that's bad. That's bad. That's bad. That's bad. That's bad. The previous at bat, bat, he pops it up, it up, the shallow center, center, two base errors, zero on the score. The play of the game on Saturday. I mean, if you're looking, if you're looking at those two in a microcosm of themselves, right. you know, one they scored three runs on an error, one probably would have scored two. Right. But there was times on Friday where a couple guys on, you don't get the run home. Sunday, second and third, one out, you don't get the runs home. And I think it's where the hitting is right now is there are a bunch of guys hitting really well. And even the guys who aren't hitting as well are getting hits, but it's about stringing those hits together. And it's about being able to capitalize when you don't, when the first guy doesn't get the the job done, the guy behind him has to. You have to make productive outs. You have to be able to manufacture runs, even when you're not tattooing the ball. Well, it's been the theme of this entire season, Matt. The word to use probably inconsistency. And when you're a team that's at 500 halfway through the season, 14 and 14, that's really the only word you can use to describe it because they've looked so so good at times, and other times they haven't looked as good. You know, the batting has been there. You know, a couple weeks ago. The team was putting up more than seven runs a game for a stretch of, you know, eight or nine games, and then things tailed off, and they had, you know, a few one-run games in Iowa, and the, the batting wasn't there. And then we've seen the weekend pitching really just go lights out. We've seen the midweek pitching be, you know, really not strong and, and put the Terps in bad positions, and then we've seen it be really strong like we did this past week, midweek against VCU. So it's clear, at least from my perspective, that this Maryland team has all the pieces, and the defense has come around. Let's Let's get that out of the way right now after, you know, really, you know, with a lot of errors shaky through the first, I think, third of the season, the Terps have cut down on those, you know, mistakes in the field considerably in the last week and a half or so. But if you look at, the, you know, the main two proponents of the game, batting and pitching, they're both there. They've just been there at different times. And in the times where they've been there at the same time, we've seen this Terps team demolish the opposition. You know, it's like we did, like we saw it on Saturday, a 13-5 to win when Taylor Bloom didn't have his best stuff, we saw it in California, you know, a one nothing win when Brian Schaefer had the best stuff of his career. So I think when you finally figure out a way to put all these things together and do it on a consistent basis, this is a team that will, you know, for lack of a better word, start to steamroll their competition. Consistently inconsistent, I right, guess you could exactly. Say. I think that's a that's a good way to sum up that that little rant there. Well, before we move in and talk to our midweek starters, Taylor Styles and Hunter Parsons, you and I began a conversation that we want to pick up here. And that's about how the challenge for this coaching staff in managing so many young arms. And I bring it up because Hunter Parsons against VCU went four and two-thirds innings, came out with two guys on base and the top of the lineup due up. I'm not criticizing the decision whatsoever. I'm just bringing up the challenge that Coach Bellinger and Coach Chef face because they have so many young arms. And you must prepare those young arms to pitch in key situations down the road. How do you balance when to leave a guy in and give him the high-stress innings and give him the vital experience about working out of a jam and when you say, I need to go to the pen? Well, I, first off, I give Jimmy Ballinger a ton of credit for managing this young pitching staff the way he, that he has. You know, so many guys coming out of the bullpen with very little college experience. And it's not just the freshmen. Some of the sophomores – you know, haven't pitched that much in their collegiate careers. Andrew Green really having his first full season. Mike Racino having his first full season after converting from third base. You know, so I think to answer your question, Matt, and to answer this the question of this discussion, I think it, it's it's completely situational, obviously. 
And we'll take a look at the Hunter Parsons situation because that's, you know, the most relevant here. And when you have, you know, two on and one out in a game that, you know, at the time you're winning two to one, still a close game, and you want to put up another zero on the board, there's two schools of thought, I think. One school of thought is, okay, you leave your freshman right-hander in making his first start that happens to be in a minor league ballpark in, and you hope that he gets out of the jam against a left-handed hitter who was on fire last year but had cooled off a little this year. That's one school of thought, and you hope he can do it. The other school of thought, and I think it was the right call, is taking Parsons out, going to the bullpen for the matchup. You bring another freshman in Andrew Miller who then gains the experience of having to work out of a jam coming into an inning. And, of course, you know, Miller didn't. He ended up walking Farrar, and then Selmer came in was and did a great job, you know, shutting down a bases loaded situation. But I think there's a couple things at play here. One, as I mentioned, you get Miller that experience of working through a jam. You know, even though he struggled and couldn't, he's still, you know, prepared mentally for it. Another thing, Parsons to that point had been pitching really well in his first start, and I think it's important for young guys, especially, you know, guys who you expect to start midweek games down the road and potentially, you know, a weekend starter, you know, in a couple years, it's important for you to build confidence. And for a guy like Parsons making his first career start away against a, a good VCU team to get through four and two-thirds innings allowing one run is, is a great way to start. You want to you have him take the mound again remembering a great start. You don't exactly. want him to come exactly. back and remember the start that got away. Now I'll throw one more thing out, and, and we may have touched on this a little bit. The fact that it was the top of the lineup for the third time in the game, and they'd seen him twice around, and I think that's kind of a hump that Maryland is, is working to and has to some extent with Taylor Styles last week gotten over, and that is to have their midweek guys face a team three times through the lineup. It's always a challenge the third time when you when your stuff is no longer a mystery. Guys have seen you know, all your entire arsenal probably, assuming they've taken several pitches for the first couple at-bats, and now they know what you have, and that's really what separates the good from the great college pitchers, I think, is to be able to work to a hitter the third or fourth time through the order when he knows what you have and you're still going to beat him. Absolutely, and I think that's a big reason why this call to the bullpen was really a brilliant one because you get Parsons out of there with a positive start. You have Miller in getting experience trying to work out of the gym, even if he can't do it successfully. Another thing, you know, you have a freshman pitcher who doesn't face the lineup for the third time, which, you know, at the point in Parsons, you know, young collegiate career is maybe not the best idea yet. On top of it all, he had thrown 70 pitches to that point. It was his first truly long outing of the season and his collegiate career, certainly pitching at, you know, a higher intensity level. And no, I don't necessarily believe in the whole pitch count phenomenon and tiring out pitchers' arms, but there is something to be said about, you know, getting guys out of games like Parsons before, you know, they, they overwork themselves and keeping them fresh, especially, you know, the towards the front end of the season. Absolutely. And I think this weekend, Jimmy Bellinger showed it as well. I think he took Taylor Bloom out right before the top of the lineup came up. And Brian Schaefer came out right before facing Josh Green, who had homered earlier in the day. And he brought in Galgan in that situation. I thought both were perfect moves. But I think the other thing we have to remember with all these young arms is Taylor Bloom and Brian Schaefer were in the same position last year. The first half of the season, they didn't pitch well. And guys were down on them and saying, all right, when are the freshmen going to pan out? And at the end of the season, they did. And this season, they have. Well, exactly. It's it's all an adjustment period. You know, much like, you know, 
guys drafted out of college adjust to the minor league level and guys getting called up for their first cups of coffee in the big leagues have to adjust to major league pitching. Pitchers have to do the same thing, and I think these freshman arms, some of them have adjusted a lot quicker than others. I think Parsons, you know, maybe a guy who's adjusted the fastest. Zach Gov has been coming on as, as of the last couple outings. He's been solid. So I think, you know, as these freshmen adjust and they have more and more opportunities, and look, look, when you have games where you're blowing out teams, you know, 13 to 5, that's a prime opportunity to get some of the younger guys' innings against, you know, college hitters. And I think the Terps have done, you know, great jobs utilizing those situations to do just that. But, you know, with this younger staff, you know, it's it's obviously the future of your program from a pitching standpoint. We're going to see a weekend rotation next year that will be Taylor Bloom, Brian Schaefer, and, you know, we'll see who the third guy is going to be. And, you know, whether it's John Murphy, if he comes on at the end of the year, whether it's Cameron Ank, Hunter Parsons, if he continues to pitch the way that he does, it's exact, it's very similar to you know, Schaefer and Bloom and getting them experience. And I think, you know, over the second half of this season, they're going to end up turning the corner. Double barrel action for you when we come back. Taylor Styles, Hunter Parsons, the midweek rotation, joins the podcast here on the Maryland Baseball Network. Wondering when our next broadcast is? Check out our broadcast schedule, available at MarylandBaseballNetwork.com, complete with links to each game's broadcast, including which broadcast will be televised on BTN+. Welcome back to the Maryland Baseball Podcast. We're joined now by Southpaw Junior Taylor Stiles. Taylor, thanks for coming on with us tonight. Yeah, no problem. So a few midweek starts now under your belt to start the season. As we're now halfway through, you guys are 14-14. and 14, And the last start against Liberty was probably, or I guess VCU rather, was one of your best of the season. Seven scoreless innings and things are starting to really turn around. Yeah, uh, it's been an up-and-down season for, for me and the team, unfortunately. But we're figuring things out, myself, the team. And like you said, halfway through the season, we're, we're not exactly where we want to be. But like I said, we're figuring it out. And I'm I'm feeling good. I like the fact that I'm in the midweek role. And we're just trying to get things rolling. You mentioned being in the midweek role now. And you started the season being named the closer, have come in in different spots out of the bullpen, and now shifting back into a starting role. What's it been to be in that kind of flux and working through different roles this season? Well, for me, I've been kind of in the situation since I've been here in Maryland. Uh, I started <laughs> as a reliever. Yeah, I was a reliever freshman year. Got a couple starts my freshman year. Sophomore year came around. I was a weekend starter. And then I went back into the relief role. Then before my injury, went back into the starting role. So I've been all over the place. And... It's a good thing, honestly. I mean, I can, I can, I feel like I can do whatever the coach has asked me to do. And they tell me that, and they say, "Hey, I mean, if you need to close a game, you're going to close a game. If you need to start a midweek game, that's what you're going to do because we know you have that versatility." And I like it. How does your approach change though in different roles? Are you coming in with more heat if you know you're coming in as a lefty specialist versus starting a weekday game versus being that closer role, or is there a different approach when you're working through the lineup, or is it just the same? In the game, I kind of treat it the same. I'm just going to throw strikes and try to get outs. Um, preparation is slightly different, just the mental preparation, even the physical preparation for a, a start versus a release. It's just, it's just different. But in the game, I treat it exactly the same. 
Well, last year you were certainly productive before the injury in that you know Saturday slot, 39 innings, and that tremendous strikeout to walk ratio of 37 to eight. And this season, it's been kind of much of the same in terms of the statue for you as far as the strikeout to walks go. You know, 19 to eight there, but obviously some struggles to start the season, and some of those struggles coming against this Liberty team that you're going to face again tomorrow. Yeah, I just. Every once in a while, you just don't have your stuff. And like I said, I've been up and down this season. And I don't want to make excuses, but coming off of the uh, the long trip from California back to that Liberty game was a test of mental toughness. But uh, I'm excited to be out. I'm excited to get that start again because I want to show them what I'm made of. I was certainly right there with you with the exhaustion coming off that red eye flight. And I find it I find it interesting that you're starting against this Liberty team that you faced last week. So they've already, they saw you, you know, just seven days ago. So what do you take from that game, from that start into tomorrow? And what kind of adjustments do you make? Well, the positive about that, uh, I guess, bad outing I had against Liberty is that they didn't see any of my good stuff. I didn't have, <laughs> I didn't have yeah, I didn't have my fastball command. My slider wasn't breaking and I didn't, I couldn't throw my change up for a strike. So even though I had a not so good outing against them, which we ended up winning that game, they still haven't they haven't seen my good stuff, and I'm going to be ready to throw that tomorrow. So sandbagging them a little bit. <laughs> Sorry. I guess you're sandbagging them a little bit. They they think they know what you're all about, and you're you're going to come out with something new. Yeah, exactly. That's the plan. All right. So obviously a very scary moment for you last year. Everyone. Very happy to see you back out on a mound this season, but just briefly take us through what the rehab process was like. Obviously, you put in a ton of work, but you know, after your surgeries, what was it like to get back out on a mound? It was one of the most amazing experiences ever. I was, uh, where were we? It was an inner squad game. We, were up, we played up at Hartford, and that was the first time I faced live hitters, and to be honest, I wasn't even nervous, and I don't know why. Um, I went out there, and the very first batter I faced, uh, it was a strikeout. I struck the guy out, and I was I was pumped. And then I think I was a little too pumped because I struck that first guy out in my first inning back and then walked three batters. <laughs> so who, I, who was the guy you struck out? Uh, I want to say it was Brandon Smith. Oh, playing on his home turf, or former home yeah, turf. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So... I, want, I think, yeah, it was definitely Brandon Smith, and then I felt awesome. I was all pumped up that I struck a guy out. I guess I got two amped up, and I couldn't find the zone after that. Well, certainly great to see you back on the mound. And just going through the recovery process, I know you know you now wear the mask now, and I know some of the players have taken to calling you Batman because of the resemblance it, it bears, even though it's clear. Is that a nickname? What do you think about the nickname? I think it's funny. It's funny because they call me Batman, and then they call me Bane. So I don't know if I'm a hero or a villain, but either, either way, it's cool. I like it. It's fun. Um, people say the mask was awesome. I actually thought it looked kind of weird at first, but I, I, I'm growing accustomed to it. It's comfortable. Uh, I like pitching with it now. So you've had to you have to adjust to pitching with the mask. What are the kind of the differences in terms of the feel when you're on the mound? At first, it's just knowing it was there. Really, I mean. Because people don't pitch with a mask. It's just not a common thing. So the fact that I knew I was doing something completely different, every, everybody could see it. I just had to get used to 
this new accessory, I guess. Um, but like I said, it's not uncomfortable. It, it's molded to my face. Uh, I actually had my face molded completely, sat there with that imprint on my face. And then, so it fits my face perfectly. So it's comfortable. Uh, I have eye holes so I can see through it. I just had to get used to having it actually flush to my face. How about the summer? What was that like for you? And kind of what were the milestones you reached in your rehabilitation process? I want to say it was at the end of the recovery process of my second surgery. So I had the facial reconstructive surgery in early May. And that was kind of an easy recovery. All I had to do was basically just lay there and recover. Then for my second surgery, I actually had to get the inside of my eye repaired because I had that, uh, that hole in my retina. And that was literally the worst recovery you could probably think of. I actually had to lay face down for 12 days straight in order for, the, for my eye to uh, heal properly. How did you um, pass the time? So, <laughs> Netflix. I watched, I think I watched like two whole series on Netflix for almost two weeks. Um, let's see. I ate. I ate whatever I could because that was about all I could do. Um, and I actually watched, uh, I watched the Terps uh, play Virginia because it was around that time. Well, sounds like certainly a lot, and we're so happy to see that you're back and throwing off the mound as, you know, the entire Turfs family has followed your journey back, and it, it's really been, you know, special to see you come back from such a scary moment and, you know, get back out there and, and dominate like you did a week ago. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, think, I think one of the most inspiring things from it was that initial image of you in the hospital with the crossbow just, you know, a few you know, just about 24 hours later, and we were, you know, able to put that on the broadcast the the day later. It was simulcast on BTN Plus, and we kind of threw something up there, and I think that was really great for not only the people watching to see, but it was great for us to see, and it's uh, it's an image that I, that I still reference. And going back, I want to go back to the mask just for a brief second, because I know there are some cool features about it. I keep hearing rumors that it's bulletproof and that, it's the same one that LeBron James wore. Okay, so it is the, the the guy that made my mask, and I sat down and I talked to him for three hours while he was making. He did make the exact he did make the exact same mask as Kobe Bryant and Rip Hamilton and some of the other uh, famous basketball players. Kobe, I mean, LeBron James got the exact same mask made by like his coworker, I think, or his friend. So. Not exactly LeBron James, but, I mean, he made Kobe Bryant and Rip Hamilton, so I thought that was pretty cool. Um, it's not bulletproof. He actually told me it's basically one step down from bulletproof uh, because it's not glass. It's just, like, it's, like, the strongest plastic or something. I don't know the exact term he used. It's just a very strong plastic. And what he did for, uh, for, baseball, for baseball players, because he usually makes it for basketball players, he took one of his, his – um, just one of his masks that he had made up that he leaves that he leaves there, put it on a dummy's head and took a pitching machine and bumped the velocity up to, I think, about 98 miles an hour. And he said he just threw like 50 baseballs at it, just back and back, back and forth, and it, it was fine. Nothing broke. That's that's pretty awesome. The one, the one that you took to the head, do you know how fast that one came off the bat? Uh, <laughs> I have no idea. Um People were telling me it was easily over 100 miles an hour, and 
I can probably attest to that because I couldn't even see it. <laughs> so if I were to guess, I mean, we did, we did some thinking about it, just some educated guesses. I mean, we said that on average, a line drive off of professional baseball players would bat is somewhere close to 100 miles an hour. Now, this kid's not a professional baseball player, but he was using a metal bat. So we assume that it's somewhere around 100, maybe 105. Just my guess. Well, not bulletproof, but baseball proof, and hopefully it's not something that gets tested again. Uh, let's That's, move into yeah. you know a little, a little lighter side of things. <laughs> um, we asked you this with our 25 days of baseball, but we'll ask you again. You know, what's been your favorite baseball memory with Maryland and I guess growing up as well? Well, I'll answer both questions then. Um, and it's funny because my favorite baseball memory growing up actually happened on Maryland's baseball field. So it was my senior year of high school, and we had a team who who really wasn't – we weren't a good team, I would say. We had two of our guys actually still play baseball, like digit level. So we had seven starters who literally don't play baseball anymore. So we had we just had a team of average guys who really don't even – see baseball as a huge thing but we had a really great relationship and we were my favorite team to be around and we made it to the championship that year and it was a shock for everybody and we played the championship at Maryland's baseball field and we actually ended up playing against Damatha High School which is I guess I would say everybody's rival um it was a three-game series we won the first game lost the second game and I was pitching the third uh the third game and I was there, I was obviously excited. Everybody was excited because I was the uh, the conference player of the year that year. So I had a I had I had something to hold up basically. And we ended up losing that game one to zero. We both both pitchers threw a two hitter, and a kid scored on a swinging bunt. And even though we lost, it was the most fun experience I've ever been a part of. So now, sorry, go ahead. Does Justin Morris ever give you a tough time about that? He does, yeah. Um, and every time he does, I show him a picture of the grand slam I hit when he was catching. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. And so he, I have the grand slam picture, um, and that was the game we won that first game, but he does have the championship over me. So we joke about it almost every day, actually. Literally joked about it like two days ago. That's funny. So, and it was, it was just really cool that it was on Maryland's turf, and then the next year I got to play for Maryland. It was awesome. Have you ever taken batting practice at Chibley Field, and have you hit one out since then? I have taken batting practice, like, with the coaches only one time for fun. We got, like, a pitcher's batting practice after sweeping a series. And I only had, like, six swings. I didn't hit any out then. But I have taken batting practice just with, with a couple of the guys on an off day. And I have hit, I think, one or two out. Got lucky. So, obviously, the whole DH, no DH is an ongoing debate. I guess, where do you stand on that? And was it weird coming to college and being told you're done hitting? Um, it wasn't weird. Uh, it just kind of sucks because I miss hitting a lot. But where do I stand on that debate? I think pitchers should hit. I really do. I mean, honestly, on our pitching staff, I think we have guys that could hit at the collegiate level and could probably do well. Now, I mean, obviously we haven't swung a bat since high school, but if if that debate were to end up going in the pitcher's favor and we could hit, we would obviously take that extra practice to work on hitting. And I just think it would be – I think it'll make the game more fun for pitchers and just more of an, I guess, an all-around athletic sport. If you're the manager and you have to send up one pitcher on this Maryland team to hit, 
Who is it? Oh man, if I'm the manager, so I can't send myself, right? No, you're you're out of this equation. <laughs> um, Jared Price. Uh, he obviously Jared Price is a huge dude, so he'd be just an intimidation factor in the batter's box. And he's told me that he's a pretty good hitter, and I've seen him swing the bat, and he has some power. Well, but we also have we have Mike Racino also, who was a hitter, right? Fair. So. But I think I want to see Jared just because I've seen Mike hit before. Well, as long as you don't throw Mike a curveball, he, he'll he probably do pretty well. Oh, yeah, exactly. Just throw Mike curveballs and change up. <laughs> well, maybe you'll get a chance to swing the, the wood bats a little bit up in Cape Cod. I know you're headed up to Falmouth with Taylor Bloom. Uh, what are you mm -hmm. most looking forward to about the summer up in the Cape? Everybody's just told me that the Cape, obviously it's great baseball, and that's going to be awesome. But they just told me that the whole experience of the Cape is just amazing. They say it's beautiful weather every day. Um, the host families are all awesome because they they just love baseball players. All the guys told me that basically all you do up there is like all the all that the people that do up there is just watch Cape Cod baseball, and that's just a really cool thing to me. So it's just going to be a great experience. I'm looking forward to it. Well, opening night up in Cape Cod, Falmouth is coming to Chatham and. I'll be there as well. I'll be calling the games for Chatham this season, so I'll see you then. Oh, that's awesome. So, so we'll, have, we'll have a little Maryland baseball reunion up there. Yeah, definitely. Looking forward to that. So speaking of baseball outside of Maryland, last night, opening night today, opening day on the Major League level, who's your World Series pick? Oh, man. Whew, I haven't even gone into this, honestly. Um I'd like to see the Nats win just because they're my home team. Uh, speaking of which, Bryce Harper hit a home run his first at bat, so it's looking good for them. That's now four straight yeah. opening days that he has a home run. Yeah, that's amazing. He's just, it's unbelievable. But I don't know. If the Nats have a good year, maybe they can pull it off. Who knows? They're, they're pretty good every year. They just got to figure stuff out. Well, Jake has his Mats. I'm picking the Giants, not because it's an even year, just because that – Pitching staff is absolutely stacked. No, he's p he's picking them because it's an even year. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're always good. All right, Taylor. Thanks so much for joining us, man. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, no problem. Thank you very much. All right. When we come back on the Maryland Baseball Podcast, we'll be joined by another midweek starter, a freshman right-hander, and Hunter Parsons. So stick with us here on the Maryland Baseball Podcast. Hi, Terps fans. This is play-by-play -play broadcaster Jake Eisenberg. Here at the Maryland Baseball Network, we pride ourselves on bringing you the best and most dedicated coverage of your Terps baseball team. But in order to do so, we need your help. As we enter our second season, we're looking to raise money to continue to bring you the same high-quality broadcast and coverage for as many games as possible. Every dollar raised will go directly into Maryland Baseball Network funds and go toward equipment needs, website fees, and, most importantly, travel funds to allow us to bring you all of the Terps games home and away. To donate... Head to GoFundMe.com slash MDBaseballNet. That's GoFundMe.com slash MDBaseballNet. No amount is too big or too small, and as always, we thank you for and appreciate your support. Welcome back to the Maryland Baseball Podcast. We're joined now by the freshman right-hander Hunter Parsons, and he'll start Wednesday's game against James Madison, his second start of the season. Hunter, thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. So you started out of the bullpen to start your Maryland career, and safe to say that it didn't suit you, but then into the starter's role on Wednesday against VCU and a four and two-thirds inning start and just the one run. 
uh, a fine start for your first career time at Maryland, uh, taking the ball to start the game. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, I didn't quite hear what that last part was. I was just saying that you had a, you had a good start in your first Maryland start. Oh, yeah. Um, I was very happy with it. Um, you know, getting the call to start, going back to something that I would do for high school, um, starting all the time. It was uh, it's a level of comfort um, starting, so I was, I was glad to get, out, get back out there and uh, be able to get into the rhythm. When did you find out you were starting that game, and what was your reaction when you were told? Uh, we were on our way home from Iowa, and we had just gotten off our connecting uh, connecting flight, so we were waiting for our next one. And um, Coach Ballinger called me aside and told me I'd be starting Wednesday. And uh, my reaction, um, I was extremely happy. When you know, throughout throughout you know, when you came to this university uh, as a pitcher, was it kind of a midweek starting role that you envisioned? to start your first season? Um, I knew, uh, you know, I knew that Coach Ballinger, he had talked to me about it a couple of times, like, uh, earlier in the fall. And um, so, yeah, it was definitely something I envisioned. What is the preparation like going into that first start? What are you doing beforehand? Well, um, once I found out Sunday, we got back, um, Monday, I threw a short box, um, just having the catcher come up and getting the feel for my pitches and location. Um, Tuesday, didn't really do a whole lot. Just took the day off, tried to, you know, envision the next day, getting up on the mound, um, doing some tower, envisioning uh, pitch location and stuff like that. And then um, Wednesday, uh, just like a three-hour bus ride maybe to the game. So, um just put on a playlist and really just tried to get my mind right. Um, once we got to the field, just sitting down in the bullpen, just imagining success. Um, Coach Ballinger has always talked about, you know, you got to envision success to have it. And um, he's given us some readings and stuff about getting your mind right for the game. And so I was just envisioning uh, going out there and making pitches and uh, doing a good job. Well, no bus ride this week. You'll have your first home start. What do you expect the, the difference to be? pitching in front of a Maryland crowd? Um, you know, it'll, it'll definitely be more comforting um, going and having your first start on the road in front of um, away fans against a very good VCU team. Um, it was a little nerve-wracking, but being able to come back to the home park um, on a midweek where it's supposed to be pretty nice, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited. I think, it'll, I think it'll be a good good start, good first home start. You mentioned throwing on that playlist on the bus ride over. What's your go-to? What pumps you up before a start? Uh, I really like the um, Christian rapper Lecrae. Um, it's like a lot of the words he has, and it's a lot of uh, thoughtful, inspiring words. And um, that and also like Tadashi and Andy Mineo, they're both Christian rappers too. Um, just a lot of stuff that's uh, positive, up- uplifting, and uh, yeah, just – Reminds me that it's not just me on the mound. Um, I also got God, which really helps. So no Marty Costas originals with you. We know he's trying to kickstart his music career. We had him on the podcast a couple weeks ago talking about his SoundCloud tracks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I've listened, I listened to a couple of them. You know, I wish the best for him. I mean, he's a dang good baseball player. So 
I, I hope that works out for him first and foremost. But hey, if he, <laughs> he needs a he needs a backup job. You know, I wouldn't hate to see him in a music career too. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's back up a little bit. You're a senior in high school playing for Parkside, and you get the call or you see on the tracker that you're drafted by the Indians. Take us through the emotions of that and, and your reaction. Oh, well, I mean, there, there's honestly nothing like it. Um, You know, there's – as a high school player, you know, there's guys that are just playing high school baseball and knowing they're not going to, you know, that college baseball isn't likely and they're just playing for the fun of it. That would be me and, and Matt. So, be, <laughs> <laughs> so being able to play, for having fun, and then um, knowing that there's a life after high school with baseball still – it's just something that's unreal. So hearing my name called on the tracker was just, I mean, it was it was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Where where were you when it happened? Take us through the entire kind of situation. Well, um, I was sitting at home, and I was a, uh, watching a movie at the time with um, my currently ex-girlfriend. And uh, my mom was in the living room, um, just cleaning up some stuff and she was actually the one who uh who found out first she was she looked on twitter and saw that the uh draft tracker had tried um drafted me and then uh, a couple minutes later um the area scout for the indians bob merrick called me and um he was my head coach for one of the tournaments i played in east coast pro and so having him draft me was pretty awesome um an experience that was it was just unreal was there any consideration ever of going pro obviously 40th round most people do stay with college but did you ever have an inkling or was it maryland all the way uh no i mean pro baseball is definitely something that uh if i was if you know the timing is right i was gonna do it um yes pro baseball is definitely something that i would have considered but uh looking back on it i'm certainly glad i came to maryland i feel like i've already developed so much as a player both physically mentally and um, I just think that over the next couple of years, I'll develop even more, and I can't wait to see what happens with that. We talked about this briefly in Tuscaloosa, Hunter, but I want to bring it up again. Your first appearance and the first batter you faced came against a guy who was also drafted by the Indians who you played with on the Evo Shoot Cans and Kobe Vance. What was going through your mind when you saw someone you knew you know, so well in the batter's box against you? Uh, I was... You know, that's funny. Um, me and Kobe, we're really good friends. And so in the pen, you know, I didn't even know where we were in the lineup. And then to come out there and I saw him in the on-deck circle, I was like, oh, man, like what a way to start my college career. And so um, we both kind of smiled at each other when I stepped up on the mound for this first pitch. And then, uh, you know, I gave him a pitch that he uh, he could hit, and he certainly showed that he hit it. Um but, I mean, that was cool. We joked about it after the game. I was like, man, why'd you have to make me look bad? And, <laughs> you know, it was, it was a funny situation. But, yeah, it was it was awesome. Who do you think has the advantage in general, a pitcher that knows a batter or a batter that knows a pitcher? Um, I don't know. I mean, it all depends on execution, honestly. Because um, a pitcher can know a batter well and know what he needs to do. But if he doesn't execute that pitch, like um, – like I did, then obviously a, a hitter can certainly attack that pitch and uh, come out on the better end. So it all depends on execution. I think if you execute your pitches, then the pitcher ha- definitely has the upper hand. 
Well, in your defense, Kobe was having a pretty solid series. He had a game on Saturday when he hit four for five and hit a home run, and you know he had that double off of you. So might have gotten the best of you there, but he was certainly hitting hot during the weekend, and I'm sure the next time you guys face each other down the road, you'll have the upper hand. Oh yeah, I sure hope so. And um, yeah, it was it was awesome seeing Kobe have a good weekend. Um, definitely wish the best for him down the down the road. You mentioned being uh, happy that you made the decision to come to Maryland and and your development so far. I guess what's been the best part so far about your experiences here? Uh, the best part has been um, working with Coach Bellinger. Uh, he's definitely taught me some things about the game that has certainly improved my game by a tremendous amount already. Um, one of those being, like I talked about, the mental aspect of the game. Um, in high school, you know, it's a lot different. You can go out there and throw 90 miles an hour and just blow it by kids. Here at the college level, you really got to execute your pitches and you got to control your breathing. And so I think working with Coach Bellinger has just been the best part. And then all the other coaches just chiming in, you know, keeping uh, keeping you uplifted and um, always having your back and just a great set of coaches that really know how to coach their players. And it's just always, it's always a fun experience to go to the field every day. What about the rest of the pitching staff? I know you guys have a really – young staff between the freshmen like you and Guth and, and Miller, Ank and Murphy, but what have you taken and learned from some of the older guys like Taylor Stiles, Rob Galligan, or uh, Mike Schwarren? Um, there, there's plenty of things. Uh, one huge thing would be um, like Stiles and a couple of his midweek starts, he comes out and he gives up a couple runs, make a bad, making a couple bad pitches, and then Last week he comes out against Liberty and or VCU and dominates their seven scoreless innings. So I think that's one thing I've definitely learned. Um, a couple of the other guys too is one bad appearance doesn't make or break you. Like you're going to get the ball again and you're going to be able to go out and next time you do just shove it. And um, so I think that's that's one of the best things I've learned. And then they've all the other guys you know have chimed in about um, you know how they handle their pressure situations. What what they do when they get 2-0 on a batter in a big game, and um, other mental things that have really helped. Well, Hunter, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a lot of fun, and uh, best of luck to you on Wednesday. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. When we come back on the Maryland Baseball Podcast, Matt and I are going to take a look at the week ahead. We'll talk about the game tomorrow against Liberty, game Hunter is starting against James Madison Wednesday, and this weekend's Big Ten Series against Ohio State. So stick with us here on the Maryland Baseball Podcast. Want instant info on MBN coverage? Make sure to follow us on Twitter at MDBaseballNet. MBN's Twitter account will update followers on broadcast information and will provide links to all MBN content, including interviews, game recaps, and much more. Again, don't forget to follow the official Twitter handle of the Maryland Baseball Network at MDBaseballNet. Welcome back to the Maryland Baseball Podcast. Jay Geisenberg and Matt present here. We just heard from Taylor Stiles and Hunter Parsons. We'll start Tuesday and Wednesday's games. Tuesday will get underway tomorrow at Liberty at 6 p.m. while the Wednesday game will be home against James Madison. And, you know, looking ahead to those two games, I want to start with something that I find a little interesting. When I found out that Taylor Stiles was going to start Tuesday and Hunter Parsons Wednesday, it took me by surprise initially. I thought that with Styles struggling against Liberty last week in College Park, that 
that the, the two midweek starters would flip for this week, and Parsons would take you know the hill against the Flames, and Taylor would come back and pitch against James Madison. Just because that Styles struggled and the Flames had seen his stuff, you know, just I mean to start off, what are your thoughts about that to begin with? Well, as Styles said, they didn't see his good stuff. They don't they don't know what's coming, and I think there's something to that. I also think that they probably did see a decent amount of him, but I think you put yourself in the best position to win both games by doing it this way. I think Liberty is the better team and you put your better pitcher up against the better team. I think guys also like being on schedule and in a certain routine and a certain rhythm. And so Siles has started the last two Tuesdays. So keep him on track, have him start exactly one week later. And same thing for Hunter Parsons. I really have no no problem with this move, although I do understand the point you bring up. I mean, on top of it, you know, there's I'll play devil ad, devil's advocate against myself, and you know, Styles has seen the Liberty hitters for one thing. You know, whether he fared well against them or not, and for another, this is a game that's at Liberty. So you take a, a veteran like Styles and have him pitch the away game where Parsons will get the chance to pitch in front of the home crowd and probably more comfortable at that. So. You know, all in all, I understand the decision completely. I was just saying, you know, initially it caught me by surprise. But, of course, you know, that's why I'm not making the decisions. <laughs> well, Jake, you, you saw Liberty last week. And what stood out to you about this team? Well, it was a team that was certainly resilient. You know, they were down, you know, 10 to 5 going into the latter innings and then came back and almost, you know, retook the lead in the ninth. You know, this is a Liberty team that the Terps face every year, uh, a non-conference midweek opponent consistently that, you know, is always a good team. You know, they feature a guy in TJ Artis who is one of the top prospects. He was drafted out of high school by the Red Sox. He was held hitless in the game against the Terps, but, you know, he's always a factor. But, you know, the main guy who's really just so, so impressive was Andrew Yasek, their first baseman, their three-hitter, went five for six in that game with three RBIs. Also, it was a, it was a double and four singles. And look, when you go five for six in any game, that's really impressive. It certainly is. I mean... You look at what Marty Costas has done, and he hasn't done that yet this year. Still time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, who pitches the game for Liberty. I'd be a bit surprised if Jack DeGroat was the starter again against the Terps. He didn't pitch horribly against Maryland. Three innings, allowed just one run, walked two, struck out two. And they kind of pieced that game together a little bit with, you know, bullpen guys and Thomas Simpson, Caleb Evans, Cody Gamble, you know, all coming out of the pen. You know, the Terps kind of did the same thing after Styles, you know, got chased after allowing his four runs with Galligan, Green, Miller, Selmer, Parsons, Guff, and Racino. But, like I said, you know, this is a Liberty team that isn't going to go down without a fight. They feature some really strong hitters in the lineup, as I mentioned. You know, not just Artis and Yasek, but also Dalton Britt, their, their shortstop. He went over 5 last week, but, you know, that by no means, you know, is an indication that he'll go over 5 again tomorrow. And then on Wednesday, you have James Madison at home, a 13-15 and 15 record for James Madison, although they're coming off a series in which they won over Delaware, taking two games of three this weekend. A big shootout on Sunday, 14-12 to 12 winners uh, for James Madison. And, of course, that game, as all, will be on the Maryland Baseball Network. Uh, Liam Bedis and Cam Rogers will have the call on Wednesday. And then as we move into this Ohio State series this weekend, the first Home Big Ten series of the year. Ohio State, a good record so far this season, 19-7 and seven and 1 on the year. They have a tie, Jake. How about that? Don't see that too often in baseball. So, so certainly a challenge against Ohio State, although as you brought up to me just a moment ago, Maryland really came alive against Ohio State a year ago. 
I mean, that, that series in Columbus at Nick Swisher Field was probably one that was maybe the best for Maryland all around, even though they, they, they took two. They didn't sweep the series. They won the Friday and Sunday games, but they scored double-digit runs in every single game. They won on Friday 13-4. to They lost on Saturday 13-12, to and then won again on Sunday 14, I mean 13-10. to So it was a series all around where the offense was, was really flowing, and you had guys in the 13-12 to loss who had fantastic games at the plate. Lamont Wade went four for six. Jose Quas went three for five. Tim Lewis went three for five. Jamal Wade went two for five in that series. You know, it was a series that featured, you know, home runs all over the place. And, you know, the Terps able to take two out of three from them last year. We'll look to do the same and really get things going in conference play this season. And Ohio State hasn't played a great rosh, uh, a great schedule, I should say. They, they've swept Hostra. They've beaten Northwestern, Bethune-Cookman. Not top-notch teams, although they did play in that Myrtle Beach tournament. Uh, they lost to Duke and Coastal Carolina, both good teams uh, down there. They they uh, beat Coastal Carolina as well, and Liberty was in that tournament. Uh, I think Maryland played in that tournament a year or two ago uh, down in uh, Coastal Carolina, Myrtle Beach. Um, so definitely a good tournament down there. The rest of their schedule doesn't shine through uh, quite so well for the Buckeyes. Well, they've got some hitters on this team that are really strong. And the guy, you know, right at the top, hitting 400, who's played in every single game, Nick Sergakis, he's, like I said, hitting 400. He, he's got five home runs, a slugging percentage of 664. So he's going to be a potent bat that this Maryland team will, will have to deal with. And, you know, there are other guys like, you know, Jacob Isakovic, you know, nine home runs on the season. Now, that leads the Big Ten. And then they're, they're starters as well. They're three weekend guys, Tanner Tully, a 2.53 ERA, Adam Niemeyer, a 3.48 ERA, and then John Havard, a 3.86 ERA. So three guys in the weekend rotation that have sub-four ERAs. Nothing tremendous, nothing the Turks haven't seen before, but reliability, and I, I think any team that can send out three guys consistently with good ERAs are going to give you a run for your money. Not only that, all of them with really good strikeout-to-walk ratios as well, 34-9, for Tully, 41 and 4 for Niemeyer, and 32 to 7 for Havard. So just to uh, update you on something, in case you weren't aware, the game on Friday afternoon has been pushed up. It will be on the Big Ten Network, so a 5:30 start, I believe, originally 6:30 on the schedule that came out at the beginning of the season. Saturday it is a 2 p.m. start, and Sunday a 1 p.m. start. Again, the next five games you will hear right here on the Maryland Baseball Network. That'll wrap up the podcast, episode 14 in the books. Don't forget to tune in to Jake Eisenberg live from Lynchburg tomorrow. He'll be live at 545, first pitch at 6 p.m. against Liberty. Thanks for joining us once again on the Maryland Baseball Podcast on the Maryland Baseball Network.